oh, this is gonna this is gonna sound interesting when taken out of context. <laughs> so I'm just not that critical of a guy. <laughs> Right, you know, like criticizing things Ooh, is easy. That's the pull quote. <laughs> oh, Today is Gil. Hello. Owen. Hey. And Lillian. Hi. Today we have a very special episode for you all. We, um, after doing our Donna Haraway episode that comes out right before this episode, we, if you listened, we ended up talking quite a bit about science and climate change. And as a group, we decided we need to go to an expert to talk about all things climate politics, security, etc. So I'm very excited to let you all know that today we have Professor Olafemi Tewo from Georgetown University. Thank you, Olafemi. Hey. Glad to be here. Um, so, Professor Tewo, or for the purposes of this podcast, if it's okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna just call you Femi, if that's all right. Yep. Um, he is an assistant professor at Georgetown. His work draws from the Black radical tradition, anti-colonial thought, and German transcendental philosophy, amongst contemporary social science, history of activism, activist thinkers. He is, uh, I believe, reconsidering reparations. His manuscript will be coming out of Oxford University Press. Today, we're going to be discussing discussing issues dealing with climate justice, climate colonialism, or climate imperialism, generally understood. Femi shared with us four more public-facing articles that we will have uh, listed that he has written on these. And so I don't want to talk too long, but I will say that, you know, um, I, when I reached out to Femi to ask him to come on, I said I, I really did, at least in the beginning, want to focus on the African continent. It seems that if we're going to talk about climate politics, we need to talk about at least how colonial relations or neo-colonial relations are reconfigured there presently, what we can expect in the future as it concerns migration politics and security politics. And it seems to me it's very important to, you know, kind of center the African continent because in many ways the effects of climate change and these global politics are really laid bare out there. So as a way of jumping in, I'd, I'd like you to say a little bit, Femi, about, so you've used the phrase climate colonialism or climate apartheid. What do you mean by that? And what relationship does that have to present day African countries? So climate apartheid and colonialism for me are more or less the same concept, but just worked out at different scales. So if you look at maybe a national context or a community context, and you ask the question, how is climate change going to reconfigure social relations, right? How is it going to intensify class antagonisms? How is it going to intensify the gaps between the haves and the have-nots? And I think most importantly, how is it going to redefine what being a have versus a have-not means? And what people have pointed to under the heading of climate apartheid is increasingly that as climate crisis accelerates, the gap between haves and have-nots is going to be caused and increasingly characterized by how 
people are able to insulate themselves from the worst effects of climate crisis or fail to insulate themselves from the, from the worst effects of climate crisis. A really stark example of this are heat waves, such as the ones that um, have happened in Europe over the past decade or so, um, the ones that are likely to happen. Having access to reliable energy and air conditioning in the context of a heat wave would be literally an existential difference, right? And as the pace of those things accelerates, we will come to see debates over energy security and energy access take on a much different political form than they take on now in the present tense. Climate colonialism is just the same insight, but considered geopolitically. So relationships between countries, relationships between indigenous nations and the nearby settler states, I think are also going to increasingly express themselves in terms of this basic political difference. Um, who has to bear the costs of climate crisis and who bears the burdens of adapting to a world with a different climate, of reaching global climate targets, et cetera, et cetera. One of the pieces you sent us here was um, a piece on land acquisition on the African continent. And I believe you, um, uh, private corporations and even maybe uh, some nations are buying up land in Africa. How do you see this affecting the geopolitics and also the relationship of security as it concerns material subsistence for people uh, on, on the African continent? I, I think the situation is pretty dire and I'm alarmed at how slow recognition of that situation is. So, so here are the some of the bare facts. After the global financial crisis of 2008, there was a spike in commodity prices that sent capital flying across the world. And one of the things that capital went into was acquiring land, arable land, which is the basis of food security, because you can cultivate on it. But also importantly, um, other forms of resource security. Um, land acquisitions are key to water access. Um, and a lot of the land that was acquired by these large scale land acquisitions was actually used for the growth of biofuels. So it's also playing a substantial role in energy security. The extent to which land ownership was consolidated under this capital flight is pretty considerable across the world, but I think nowhere more is this, I think nowhere is the situation more dire than on the African continent. Um, by some estimates, a quarter of all the arable land is now owned under these large-scale land acquisitions. That's going to include pension funds, it's going to include local elites, it's going to include private industries, so on and so forth. Um, and it's going to increasingly decide land use politics, which in turn is going to decide energy security, food security, and water security for the continent. And history has not been reassuring on, you know, what amount of largesse African populations can expect from large landowners. Okay, if I could jump in, there's, um, we're talking about things like energy, food, and water security. And in a number of the pieces that you sent us, you make a distinction between two different kinds of or two concepts of security that I think is really interesting and important. 
Um, so on the one hand, there's something like uh, an antagonistic security, which you sometimes describe as like a, a, a security from. And then there's also this sort of a collaborative security or like a, 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 a security with, which is a more positive sort of communal and productive way of thinking about what security could mean for, you know, uh, liberatory political projects. Could you could you help unpack this distinction a little bit and, and yeah. talk about what's so at stake? Yeah, so the it? security from the antagonistic security, it's the kind of security that um, people have by way of a barbed wire fence patrolled by armed guards, right? The kind of security that is generated through mm. precarity to other people. So the basic way of conceiving of other people, at least people outside the zone of security on this model is as threats right, as people that security has to be essentially taken from. And I think there's a connection, historically speaking, between the ways that the global system of politics and economics was set up and this form of security. It's the kind of security that the planter elite had from the enslaved people that built their fortune mm -hmm. um, and that I think played a substantial role in building the world order. And it's the kind of security that much of the international system, I think, relies on in a much different way, militarily speaking, right? So the kind of security that comes from being able to project force from anywhere on the globe, which is the US's um, national security strategy, right? Or integral to the US's national security strategy. That obviously is, one approach and one that I've not made sound very good. Um, that's because I don't <laughs> think it's very good. I think it sucks. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. Thank, thank you for like giving me a punchline. Like, what yeah, does we he do not stand security? Is he a schmitty? Thumbs down. Let's find out. <laughs> Two out of five stars would not recommend. Yeah. Do uh, not recommend. I love how like if we were at an analytic philosophy conference, it would be like, well, this argument, antagonistic security, well, it would go something like this. And then but you could, yeah. but one might say that this is evil so an alternative view is something like this stay tuned to my next yeah. paper for the normative argument though right right, right. if you were a jerk you'd pick antagonistic <laughs> alternatively if you were fucking cool what you would pick <laughs> is really the other form of security use virtuous virtue signaling to our to our analytical advantage if you're if you're uncool you will be on this team. But I, there's good normative reasons for that, but you should also be invested in the cool, which is over here. Exactly. <laughs> right. And, and so the cool is collaborative security, right? Mm -hmm. Hell yeah. Um, cool kids are up to. Cool kids, right? And this is the kind of security we're bung bungling right now. Um, but it's the kind of security that, say, an egalitarian distribution of vaccines might mm. provide, where... Um, the very thing that makes me safe is the distribution that makes you safe, right? It's the successful non-eugenics version of herd immunity, right? Where yes, we it's important to emphasize the non-eugenics. Precisely, yeah. I used to be able to just say herd immunity, and then the last year happened, and now I have to. <laughs> <laughs> now I have. Yeah, you're talking about the cool herd immunity. Yeah, <laughs> precisely. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Cool herd immunity. And I think, you know, that's that's the place where 
I'm hoping that's the place where climate politics could go. And my investment in things like the Green New Deal or a global Green New Deal is exactly this, right? Um, getting away from doom and gloom and also getting away from, I think, unhelpfully oppositional climate politics and going towards the more abolitionist thought, you know, on Gilmore's ver version, right? Abolition is a presence, right? Abolition is what you have when people have what they need. I think that's the ethos for mm. collaborative security-based climate politics. One of the things I really appreciate about your work is the way that you tie, like your way of doing materialist analysis ties these global distribution issues and global power networks to more local ones. Because it's a, you know you gave the example of vaccines when you talked about collaborative security, but elsewhere you give the example of like community control over policing. And you specify it's community control over policing, not community policing, which is a PR right. stunt basically to try to whitewash um, uh, to try to make it appear as if things have changed, even though the kinds of the decision making and the power centers of policing haven't changed whatsoever. Right. That's, I think, one of the goals of a lot of these attempts to kind of capture what the anti-police energies of you know activists have been um, have been bringing. Um, so, yeah, I wonder if you could just say maybe something about how you 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 jump so um, very adeptly between these this kind of global you know, these kind of global systems of power and then these kind of local systems of power. And then you index a kind of praxis, a, a kind of emancipatory practice to both of those kinds of levels. Yeah, I, I, I wish I could say it that well. Um, the But but that's that's exactly the thought, right? <laughs> I mean, I have, a, I have a core set of commitments and collaborative security and finding ways to be for it is one of those commitments. But I think the way that these things are getting tied together in my head is maybe best explained as a political perspective on which they aren't separated in the first instance, right? So, you know, one thing we could mean mm -hmm, yeah. by materialism, right? A material analysis of society is like, there's a bunch of stuff, land, property relations, our property relations themselves material, but, but, you know, we could, we could just say, well, give me a list of things and I'll pick the things on that list, which sound material Z. And I'm not going to listen to you if you talk about anything <laughs> else on yeah. the list. Right? Material Z, I love that. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, I, I don't know. I obviously <laughs> that's not my position, but, um, but, but that's, you know, I think that is a fairly coherent enough way of talking about materialism. But, you know, when I say things like racial capitalism, when I say things like systemic, whatever, systemic oppression, systemic patriarchy, systemic racism, whatever, I just, I'm literally, I'm just describe I'm just saying something literal about the social structure. I'm saying like, there is an arrangement here of power of institutions and the way that these things relate to each other. And I'm just describing that actual structure. And so there isn't another thing I could mean by ending systemic racism other than making different institutions or different relationships between institutions and so on and so forth. And so when I describe what kinds of changes I'd like to make to that structure, then, you know, I can, I can talk about things like you know, 
principles and I could talk about the normative and so on and so forth. And there's an important role for that, right? Because we could obviously make things worse. But but I'm just not, you know, there isn't a separate normative land where the idea of collaborative security exists. It's just a description of a different way of arranging these things that we need in the world, whether they're systems, whether they're distributions of resources, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, that's great. So, because it's not just, I think, like analytically important that you do that. I think if you don't make, if you don't show how these processes play themselves out at a kind of local level, it becomes so daunting that I think a lot of people get really cynical about what emancipatory practices would look like, right? If you're just facing global structures and you can't locate where you live down you know, on your block or, you know, in your neighborhood, how these global power structures are affecting and shaping your life. It becomes very hard to oppose. And so, uh, I don't know, I just, I, I really, really appreciate that gesture. And you do that in the security piece too, where you, where you give the example of that woman, De Jesus, and you start out with her experience of poverty in the favela and her way of connecting it to global systems of power uh, yeah. and to a material situation, not to, you know, necessarily a set of people that are responsible. Yeah, I think that's exactly I think that's exactly right. I think it's important for, you know, people to understand what's at stake with these kinds of distinctions. But I also think um, maybe maybe as like a, a corollary to that or just another thing that comes out of that importance is just the fact that if we don't define in real concrete systemic terms what anti-racism or anti-patriarchy or anti-ableism means what we're saying is that this system that we just described as bad is what we're relying on to decide for us what those things mean and i just think that's an egregious political mm. error and the complicity of academics in making that political error is um mm. bad <laughs> Okay. <laughs> Thumbs down. Not good. Not, not cool. Not cool. Again, not cool. Okay, hold on. I actually want to back up because I feel like what you said was really good, but I'm not sure I got it. So, you, were you saying that academics have a habit of not being concrete about the things, like when they describe these things in abstract terms, um, conceptually, they don't actually have in mind like a concrete set of institutions or distributions that they are attributing to those things. And therefore they don't think about the way in which they like a concrete set of things that they would like to change. And that creates like a very bad displacement. Yeah. I, I think a lot of times the way that academics engage in relating to the demands social movements are making that um, is in a way that either further obscures or fails to clarify what the concrete upshots of these different protests could be, right? So, you know, I'm, I'm just envisioning a role where like, mm -hmm. you know, it's, it's work, it's hard work, and it's it's very difficult to understand systems, and none of us could do it individually, right? We have to mm -hmm. rely on each other to, right. you know, point out things that we missed, or et cetera, et cetera. But one role that academics as a group could be playing is to, you know, take up that particular share of the vast amounts of labor that's going to take to make a different world out of this one, right? So we could make it our business instead of, you know, Instead of just saying, you know, oh, the people who are criticizing 
this structure are right, we could be like, you know, here is a version of a different structure entirely, or here's a different version of this structure, or, you know, here's another thing we could do. Here's another way society could be concretely, not just at the level of principles or vibes, but here's some actual shit we could do to like <laughs> remove the thing people are criticizing from the world and make a better one. And I think we don't do that enough. Yeah. Yeah. The, the, the vibe of the vibe of occasion of, of so much, you know, you know, like, you know, academic work that wants to be a part of this. You know, I, I think in many ways this has happened. And, I, you know, I, I'm talking about a piece that we didn't read for you, but I think all of us are familiar with your mm. elite capture essay, where, you know, um, the, the role of uh, academics can be, um, yes, actually, let me speak for these people and translate for you what the what they are actually saying, which is usually something like what, you know, when people are protesting the police, what they mean is it really bums me out when I get on the plane as a black person and they don't assume I'm yeah. going to go to first yeah. class. Like, you know, what's that about? Let's burn it all down. And by that, I mean, give me first class tickets. Like, that's not helpful. That's not helpful. You know? Um, I mean, like, I, I don't know. Get, I don't know, like, give me first class tickets, though. I, you know, now uh, I've, I've made it. When, in fact, of course, the truly revolutionary position is that there should be no difference between first class and coach. Right? That's it. True. Actually, it's that we're all first class. That. Uh. Yeah. Wow. yeah. Well, that's the rhetorical. Wow. Yeah. That's how you sell that it. That we all that's, that we that, all yeah. get little crystal salt salt shakers with our evening meal on the plane. That's really what that's, my political. That's goals all we are. want. That's all we want. <laughs> but um, I don't want to take us like too far afield. But I, I think about this because obviously, you know, we, a lot of us know you even on on Twitter, and you know, the way um, conversations around um, anti racism either get turned into defanged uh, critiques or it's turned into this amorphous blob that people would rightfully say. So, what is the point of anti racism? Either it seems omnipresent or it designates nothing. And so what I thought was really great in your article on security uh, around the Brazilian woman who um, wrote that autobiography, uh, I want to ask you, one, why was it important for you? Because I know that you wrote the specifically, quote, that you know, she didn't share middle class norms of respectability or, quote, have politics. She had politics that often diverged from tidy progressivism. Why was it important for you to point that out? Because you know the the way this is connected in my head is I think also sometimes there's this mistake of you know, to be I'm sticking with anti-racist because I also work work on, on race. You know there must be these perfect morally pure subjects who we can point to and say we are simply speaking their truth. Mm-hmm. You know mm-hmm. they already know. Or, you know, here is our, our model. Why was it important for you to say that, you know, in essence, when you're focusing on this black woman, that she shows us a lot about not just local problems, but, you know, global structures around security, but, you know, also that it wasn't like she was saying, and here's right. what capital is doing. Why was it important for you to, 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 to show this reality? Of yeah, this I. Oh, man, there's so there's so much I want to say. So. There is a there is a new it's not new but there is a newly ascendant political tendency that I'm just for lack of a better term labeling the no redistribution just vibes 
group. <laughs> no, that yeah, it, <laughs> that's the that's the proper response. Um, yeah. <laughs> And, and yeah, I, I, I really liked the, the, the vibification because I, I think what I was resisting there is a few things. One, like I'm talking about this working class person who lives in informal settlement in Brazil, right? And I think what I was trying to get people to see is that the move I'm making is not an appeal to her moral authority as someone who's very oppressed, right? She is making an intellectual statement. I'm dealing with it as such, right? I, I think she had a thought. Mm -hmm. I think that thought was intelligent. I think that thought communicates something that is worth looking at as a thought. Um, and so that, that was one of the points I was trying to make there. Um, but the other point I was trying to make there, which is, I think, maybe just a, a, a different way of looking at this same point, is that what it would take to really do her thought justice, if we, if we thought that she was correct, that freedom consisted in material security, and so we need social systems that provide material security, doing that isn't a matter of, like, uplifting her voice as a person. Right. I, I, I just happened to have a question that involved doing that when when writing this essay. But like the point isn't you should know Carolina Maria G. Jesus's name and you should read her book. Right. You should because it's a good book. But um, like that, you know, that isn't the thing that would constitute responding to the intellectual thing that she said politically. Right. And both mm -hmm. of those are subtle ways that the point, you know, that political points, political subjects, political agendas get shifted. Right. And and I think elite capture is, mm -hmm. you know, that's the description I'm going with so far for the process of how and why those discussions get shifted to whose voice we lift up, who we treat as having moral authority, et cetera, et cetera. You know, not that those aren't relevant at all, but that, you know, those are different from the intellectual conversation that I was having with her and Isaiah Berlin through this essay. So that's great, right? Because it's a, it's a really narrow path. I think I see you trying to walk, but I think you've got to be right that it's not as though there isn't any political content to these discursive questions of whose voice we're listening to, who we're paying attention to, who we grant epistemic or moral authority. But that, that there's also a different level of political content at the level right. of what it is that these people are actually saying. And so, right, elite capture on this sort of way that you describe it is kind of like ignoring the political content of the claim she's making and making the political thing to do, elevating the voice while ignoring what that yes. actual substantive political content mm. is, right? I also really liked the the language that you used, and I don't know if it was in this piece or I think it was in the other one, on Elite Capture, uh, where you talk about like a deference epistemology as being like one of the like, let's call it like depoliticizing or uh, idealistic ways of interpreting what's going on with standpoint theory. I'm fascinated by this because I see like people talking about standpoint theory, especially online in like very pejorative terms. And this always sort of confuses me because I think that it's an extremely powerful 
uh, theoretical framework and often positions are attributed to it that I don't see when I actually like pick up Hartsock, for instance, who like, you know, outlines the feminist standpoint. The claim was never that like all people from a particular standpoint or position automatically have knowledge or epistemic or moral authority, but rather that different perspectives and positions within the social structure might make different kinds of knowledge possible and that we should like consider that in attempting to nice. come to a more adequate comprehension so I, I like that a lot because I think I, I those of us who have been in classrooms and in some political and political active spaces that deference thing is a real problem oftentimes yeah um, I was just gonna add you know because it, it seems to me something that's really striking in the the type of work that you're doing not just in the four pieces that we've read but you know in other things that that you have written and, and said I think most recently you had maybe an interview with the Atlantic where you had this line that stuck with me which is you know at some point you have to do politics yourself you have to like you know, be willing and able to make your own judgments so with the the Jesus um, uh, reading that you did you know so you say you know she writes that she doesn't think that Brazil is is a racist country and but mm -hmm. you know what's clear from the way that you're writing this in the you know um, how the the risk is distributed in that society that Brazil is a racially stratified country and so it's not like you say well I guess you <laughs> right. know what can we do I I guess you know things are all right in Brazil Brazil, and it's just like really strange that disproportionately black people are the ones bearing the brunt of the risk distribution. No, you you make a judgment. You're saying, well, this is how she is seeing it, but you know we can still describe these broader structures. And I I think that that's you know a really interesting contribution you're making, which is politics is hard, and so we can we have to like balance these values of lifting up voices, but we also will have to know at some point we have to make our own judgments. We have to, you know, make our own contributions, make our, our, our own insights. Can I ask a question about where this is all coming from? Because I feel like, like you all in the past probably couple years, actually maybe since Bernie's campaign in, in 2016, it's become increasingly clear these sorts of debates have taken some time to crystallize in my mind. And I'm just wondering what you all think, like, the social basis for them is so like I, I really I love the vibification mm. um, <laughs> phrase, but the the idea of no redistribution just vibes. To me, there's like a benign version of this where there's like people who are kind of coming to political consciousness, you know, and um, I sort of call it like radical liberalism. You know, we're just like sort of against everything, um, and it's people figuring stuff out. And I'm if, if that's where you're at, then like I'm pro continuing to vibe until you get to the point of redistribution as well. But then there's also, I think, a clear mainstreaming of radical liberalism among the professional class, the media elite, and in fact, in the Democratic Party, that's actually been used against the left to argue not just like you're coming to consciousness to like think need want redistribution, but also we're going to discourage you from thinking that this is that, that this is important and there, and, and it, I think it, for some reason to me, I used to think, I used to always give the benefit to like the vibing contingent when I was like a, a an undergraduate and a grad student, because a lot of these debates actually felt confined to the left, like they felt confined to also the academic left. And I used to take for granted that we, that even if I disagreed with people politically or theoretically, that there was kind of like, there was a side that we were all on. And then at some point, 
I stopped thinking that because it's, it felt like that what, whatever the elite capture was went beyond just like professors in the classroom. It became fully mainstreamed into like, this is high liberalism now. And so now we're having these debates about like, you know, what address, addressing the content of people's arguments as opposed to just their identity. And I, to me, it seems to be this like disaggregating of like what once we could take for granted as kind of being on the same side politically. And maybe that was a symptom of being in a subculture as opposed, and, and once things get mainstreamed, then it's like, well, it's not enough to just like read these authors. Like if like CEOs are like recommending these reading lists to their employees, like we can't put like amplifying voices is no longer, it doesn't have the same ring. And then this is the kind of the end of my train of thought it became clear to me that needing to think for myself was something that I didn't used to think when I could take for granted that the people around me, we were all kind of vibing together. But then when my vibes clashed with other people's vibes, I was like, shit, I have to have my own analysis. Otherwise I'm like just a jellyfish in this like pool of ideology. (laughs) I don't know if what I'm saying makes sense to you guys. That's, that was my trajectory. Yeah. Yeah. No, that made that made sense to me. Uh, what I I sometimes you know I, I I see going on is you know we talk about this a lot on the podcast that the left and left thinking has been you know historically weak for a very long time, and we're dealing with you know what happens when it starts to break out into the open, you know, and we don't have we haven't had like you know, a robust public sphere to kind of you know, hash these things out and figure out what we want to do. And so the, the question I'd like to ask you all and, and Femi in, in particular, what do you see as the role of you know, working through these ideas in, in, in the public world to, I gather, what you think we need, which is base building? You know, how do these uh, how how do these two things relate? Because, you know, I think what we're finding is that, you know, we're not all on the same page. And uh, I don't know, we don't have, you know, the, the practice of of, you know, how do we communicate with one another? How do we start to talk about these immensely complicated questions from the local up to you know, the structural and, and back down again? What is the relationship that you see between between those? I, you know, I was I was just thinking while Lillian was explaining this one that maybe we need a theory of vibes. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> just the same thought. I was just thinking that we're okay. coming close to articulating a unified theory of the vibe. Okay, yeah. I, I can, I can no, rock need, with that. Pelly Greenster for this. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I was thinking it was just how relatable what Lillian was saying was because I I remember back. During this feels like forever ago, but it wasn't that long ago. But but I had, I had come to start thinking the elite captures these sorts of thoughts, and I was like, oh, how how bad is this, right? Like how how much does this structure of how we talk about things, whether mainstream or even on whatever the left is, right? And then Hillary Clinton dropped that, you know, if we dismantled yeah. the banks tomorrow what yeah, would that right. have to do with racism <laughs> and i i remember hearing It'd that still line. be racism <laughs> so you know golden right. sex come on in <laughs> right yeah 
what, what does the baking have to do with racism? And then, like, that was the moment I realized how out of touch I was, I feel like. Mm. Be- because mm. I was expecting that to be... I wasn't necessarily expecting, you know, just any arbitrary random person to, like, get what was wrong with that. But I, I was expecting, like, more... I was expecting that to be like a scandal. I was expecting explainers. Mm -hmm. I was expecting Mm -hmm. Mark Lamont Hill to like spend the next 48 hours like (laughs) dressing down Hillary Clinton. Like there was going to be a special MSNBC. Rachel Maddow was going to explain how banks actually connected to the Illuminati of the 16th century, which was (laughs) or whatever the fuck. Like 20 minute intro. And then you're like, what is this about? Like, well, this is going to tell you how banks cause race. I'm like, what? (laughs) And none of that happened. Everyone was just like, oh, yeah. What what do banks have to do? That's true. Yeah, they're disconnected. And I was just like, oh, wow, this this no redistribution, just vibes anti-racism is immensely more powerful than I had realized. Mm, And mm. besides just base building, I think there's a real need to kind of deal with that as its own kind of political trajectory. Well, this could maybe get at some of Will's question, right? You were asking, Will, what's the relationship between the sort of theoretical work that we might want to do or might think that we're capable of doing and and this sort of political base building uh, work. And one of the things might just be like, developing models of like analytic clarity or descriptive analyses that reveal the necessary inadequacy of sticking just to vibes right and so like you know what is it about what is it about a purely vibe oriented politics uh what does that actually accomplish in material terms and i think you know the five of us in various ways are committed to it being radically inadequate but in order for it to be clear why uh, it's inadequate, we need to, you know, articulate these frameworks. Try to, as you said, Femi earlier, like try to figure out how to uh, articulate these systems and how they relate to one another. Like, you know, it's important that you name it racial capitalism, for instance. Right? Well, and also that, like, how we relate to them politically, because you know, the vi- the vibes position, I feel like, is easier to criticize than um, some of the other positions that I, I, I think that you, I don't want to say come out against because I feel like you're trying to push us in a different direction rather than to, you know, in a kind of negation sort of way, fight against all these other positions. Um, but at the end of your, of your piece on policing or power over policing, I think it is, you make the, your position on something like redistribution really clear, which is that we shouldn't be making demands for redistribution from those that are in power, but we need to focus on building power itself, right? It's the difference between, you know, trying to exert pressure on the police versus having control over how policing is done. It's the difference between asking for more resources to be distributed to your community versus having control over how those resources are distributed. And I, I just want to read really quickly what you say here, because I, I love this. You said, the problem with policing is power, not prejudice. All of the possibilities for real, lasting, and meaningful change are downstream of community power. Until we demand and organize for power itself, rather than pleading for those who have it to take the actions we'd like, we'll never get it. 
I think you know when we say read, you know, no vibe or sorry, vibes, no read or no redistribution, just vibes. Is that sorry? I don't think I'm getting mm-hmm. it wrong, but get it no, right, Owen. Yeah, yeah, yeah okay. come on, slogan. That's a great slogan. Uh, yeah, it's not. It's not just that we want redistribution. I think you, there's a stronger argument in your work, which is that yeah. we, you know, we. It's not just that we want re- redistribution. We want control over those distribution and redistribution networks. Um, and I just wondering if you could say something about that. That uh, distinction in how we relate to the to redistribution as an aim. Yeah, I mean, this is one of those things that's so that's so fundamental to how I think about politics that it's actually really difficult to kind of walk through. Well, why is it the case? It's like, well, what do you mean? You think, right? You know, I, I guess one thing I can say is that um, the cues I'm taking here are from African materials materialist left from 50s to 70s, right? If you look at the explanations for why their resistance to the global system took the form of national independence movements, it's it's not because for, for most of the people I'm referencing, right, your Cabral's, your Nkrumah's, it's not because inclusion as a state in the international state system inclusion as a member nation of the UN. It's not because that was the horizon, right? It was a strategic intermediate step on the way to a larger renegotiation of power, a larger global redistribution, right? As long as these people control, as long as the Portuguese empire controls whether or not we get food, we are continually going to get famines, as India saw, as Cape Verde mm-hmm. saw, as Guinea-Bissau saw, right? India was under the British, obviously. But the idea was we have to take control over this to have a base to stand on for which to, first of all, control some local distributions, but secondly, and perhaps most importantly, to win this larger battle over how it is that we can coexist on the same planet on relations other than domination, which are built into the imperial state system and the colonial version of a political order. And so the connection between power over distribution networks and distribution was just, you know, they were equivalencies essentially for Mm. this generation of activists. And I think the decimation of the left the global left as part of the Cold War has left its ideological imprint on the completely, to me, to my eyes, to my ears, fantastical presumption that we could possibly separate these things that kind of pervades mm. center-left politics in the global North today. And, you know, quite as it's kept in the global South as well, right? Um, but it's just, it's all pressure. Pressure is not Pressure politics isn't instrumental anymore. It's it is the horizon of left politics because mm-hmm. nothing else has is even conceivable given that mm-hmm. you know there has been such a wildly successful effort by the capitalist powers that be to end history, as mm-hmm. the famous book put it, right? Yeah. <laughs> yes. Wait, actually, wait, which famous book are you talking about? Are we talking about Hegel? Or are we talking the about Fukuyama? Like, like, you got a lot of famous books, you know? History is over. Yeah. And I'm so glad you did that because this doesn't always happen in organic conversation, but I think this comes back to the battle against doom and gloom. 
And I want to like mm-hmm. you know, ask you two questions about this. One, um, when I was reading your piece, I don't know, it, sometimes the numbers, they still shock me because sometimes I don't think I, I know the numbers, but it was something well, you know, like yeah. um, um, 83 black men for 100 black women aged 25 to 54. That's the relate, relate, uh, ratio in the non-incarcerated population. 68% of uh, black male high school dropouts uh, since 19. 19- uh, 70 have prison records. So, you know, my two questions are, so what do you think is the importance of understanding, I, I don't want to call it historical lineages, because I, I I do worry about the sort of the, let's go back to the vivification of history, you know, um, and we've talked about this a bit, like, you know, slavery is the original sin or something like that, which can kind of covers over the modulations, the recalibrations, mm-hmm. um, the reasons why nice. uh, these types of har- hierarchies rearticulate. So so one, what do you think is important about understanding the history? Because for me, it was like when you put the numbers raw like that, I didn't realize how bad the damage was. And two, more prospectively, why do you think it's important not to have the sort of doom and gloom, especially when it comes to climate, when it comes to um, what politics we are trying to build? So I guess my first question is more about you know some of your reparations work. Um, I gather mm-hmm. you do think it's important for us to understand you know uh, past relations and all of that, not to get stuck in there. But you know what? Why is it important not to get trapped in the doom and gloom when it comes to future politics? I have my own answers, but I'd like to hear what you you think about it. Because one might think, if you look at history, that will cause nothing but doom and gloom. You know, and that will cause you to think, well, what can change, and, and et cetera. But I guess that's not where you would go. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's it's interesting. I, I think the the last thing you said is exactly right, right? Which is, if you look at history, you see how violent these systems actually are, right? And how violent the people atop them have been to produce our political present. And yeah, in a in a in an important sense, that is sobering. But I think the other thing that we get out of looking at history is an understanding that where we're at is contingent, right? It's the result of specific things people did and failed to do and attempted and failed to attempt to do and so on and so forth. It's not destiny, right? You don't look at today's distribution and be like, well, I can read off of that all of the stable trans-historical attitudes of these entire populations you don't read off of that i i'm looking at the only possible trajectory of the way that institutions could move through the future because when you look at history you realize oh the you know some of these relationships between groups of people are quite new right one thing you might realize just to make it topical is that the whole model minority treatment of asian americans is quite historically recent they did not fuck with these people for a cool century, right? And, you know, that's that's just to give one example, right? None of this shit is set in stone. And it's particular ways that things go that creates our present reality. And I think the the way that that gets translated when we're looking at the future to having a perspective other than doom and gloom is... Look, there's, there are a lot of targets and there are a lot of goals. 
and we can pick between them. You know, maybe we can win them all. You know, I would be the last person to say, you know, leave that aspiration behind. But there was no reason to think in 1855 that chattel slavery was about to end. No reason at all. Right. And it did. And that's another thing we get from history. Right. That's not because, you know, Lincoln decided that's what I'm going to do in 1860. Ah, that is not what happened. Yeah, I'm done with <laughs> right. it. Like, you know what? <laughs> Fuck the dumb shit. I'm going to free everybody. <laughs> He's like, I'm, a, I'm ready to be a cool guy <laughs> yeah. now. Yeah, he, he, he joined the cool team. <laughs> <laughs> That's actually not what happened. Actually, it was a general strike of enslaved people that exploited the advance of the Union Army. Right, That's what happened. And if we have proof that actually the course of history has been altered by people who were in bad strategic situations because they were paying attention, because they knew what was possible, we can do the same. That's so great. That reminds me, I think, often of this quote um, by Octavia Butler, right, the sci-fi author, who says something almost just to that effect, right, where she's like, I know that capitalism seems like this like impossible thing that will never be done with, but that's what the divine right of kings looked like not very long ago, right? And sort of keeping open that possibility for truly radical transformation to take place in spite of all of our, you know, best predictive capacities that might suggest otherwise. There's plenty of room for hope. Um, but I actually wanted to ask you if you could go back to what you were saying before um, about like pressure politics being uh, instrumental for a certain generation of activists and now that sort of pressure having become like the horizon. And I was wondering if you could sort of situate your, your work and your thought on reparations um, as, uh, in, in relation to that. Yeah, um, so, so that's, a, that's a really clarifying question because I think the thing that I'm trying to do with the book is to, in my mind, return reparations or at least the kind of historically informed redistribution conversation back to where it actually already was decades earlier in the global anti-colonial, anti-racist movement, the cool version, right? Right. When... And, and, uh, and, and, to be, and to be clear, the cool position is pro-reparations. Pro-reparations, yes. <laughs> oh, yes. We vibe. Ooh. Yes. I need to throw out my article I was writing. Oops. <laughs> Misread it. Read the room. And... <laughs> Because, um, you know, back then, there were two major power blocks, the Soviet Union and the U.S., right? And then the Third World, which was largely non-aligned, um, or at least strategically claimed non-alignment. And what was up for grabs in those decades was the structure of the world in a real way, in a way that we have mm -hmm. forgotten. Right. And we've forgotten it because essentially the counter revolution, the US and allied counter revolution was so inordinately successful. Right. But what was up for grabs, what people were pushing at the international level was a new international economic order. They more than tripled the number of member nations of the UN because they were so successful in beating back imperialist countries in Asia and Africa. 
they were they were going for the whole thing and the reparations conversation now the redistribution conversation now sort of takes the structure of the world as a given and asks for redistribution within that and that's obviously a thing redistribution can mean and it's certainly better than the status quo which will be happy to redistribute death downwards and wealth upwards but that shouldn't be the horizon of our imagination, right? That's not what being practical is. Being practical, being strategic, is starting from what you want and figuring out what you can get. And the dramatic course of politics, especially in the U.S., especially in the U.S. center-left, is to figure out what you think you can get and then <laughs> decide from there what it is that you want. And that's, yeah. you know, besides being asked backwards... It's just, you know, it builds capitulation into your basic politics. Yeah, it doesn't even work. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> right. I actually found found that really clarifying because you know the you know one one of the major questions I definitely wanted to ask you while you're on, on the program because you know, you mentioned Amartya Sen uh, in one of your your pieces and the the concept and notion of justice seems really important to you and so on on the one hand one might think justice and uh, given that we had liam on i'm i'm gonna make a quick rawls joke i don't mean <laughs> it keep listening etc but one might think justice okay we don't live in an ideal world what's the point of figuring out what a well-ordered society looks like when we have to deal with what we have here but i take it that you know at least part of what you're saying is it's important to have principles it's important not to generate your principles only after you're like, okay, so this seems mm. like you know, what it is. So what's the best we can make of what it is? And so what I found uh, fascinating in, in other places where I've heard you talk about you know, reparations is, you know, well, actually, let's figure out what, you know, um, a reformulated world would look like partially that would look like, um, I think I've seen you talk about this is um, high emissions countries actually pay their share to clean up the mess that they made. Now, of course, one could say they'll never do that, but at least I take your point is, well, it's not about whether or not they'll, they'll ever do that because then we can start talking about strategic politics. But if you're already starting from, well, if they'll never do that, so let's uh, build from the status quo, at least the, the science that we have, that isn't even going to work in, in the long run. So what are we talking about here? Which brings me to the, the second thing I'd like to hear you say a little bit more about is you know, the way that you weave in the way climate politics and policing are going to converge in rather frightening ways. The reason why those are connected in my head is one might think, well, maybe we can actually just like sort of modulate the institution of, of, of the police. You know, maybe if we can like, you know, sand away its rough edges. Well, some of what you're saying, you know, with the way you look at things through, through justice and, you know, saying here's where things are going to go, those sanded off edges aren't going to remain sanded off forever. That we can already see how much sense it would make, and by sense I mean in the worst sense, the sense it would make for the police to start, you know, becoming more militarized at the border. I mean, we are already a country that warehouses human beings, whether it's at the border or within. Do we really think that that would end? Like, why would it? Especially if um, the last thing I'll say is this um, system isn't only about distributing like production and reproduction, but it's about distributing risk. 
And we have seen no evidence that the ways these institutions are arranged now as a status quo are ever going to remodulate how they distribute risk, especially if things get more dire. So I know I said a lot of things there, but I, I, I felt that they were connected around what is the role of this uh, concept or idea of justice uh, in your political work? And how would you respond to someone saying, well, we don't live in a just world, so why do you need that? Yeah, for, for me, a lot of times I say justice. Um, a lot of times I also say the constructive view. One thing I lean on in the book is um, Adam Gitachi's way of putting it, which is world-making, right? So, so she describes the anti-colonial fighters as, as undergoing a project of world-making. And I think all of that are just different ways of saying this same basic thing, which you actually picked up on earlier, which is just you have to do politics by yourself. You have to do politics yourself because the system is going to try to do politics for you and you're not going to like the way that they want to do it, <laughs> right? Most likely not. Yeah. So so that's not to say make no concessions to reality. That's not to say don't be practical. That's to say something about what being practical is, which is it's not mm. practical to let people who don't care if you live or die decide the starting point of conversation. <laughs> mm-hmm. Because they've already started it. The tendency in the global north with the strongest climate plan that's most organized is the far right. You know, while we are figuring out, while we're figuring out how we feel about climate crisis, they have been laying down an actual institutional structure for mass detention at borders. They have been fueling and funding multiple technological startups to increase their surveillance capacity at borders. They have been developing essentially the preconditions for climate genocide. So now imagine starting from a position of pressure politics. They say we're going to detain and kill 3 million people two decades from now. We're going to try to haggle that number down too. Actually, fuck that. Fuck that oh. whole framework, right? Oh, right. Yeah. Like, oh, wow. Okay. And yeah, when you put it like that, it, it's really fucking distasteful. Like, can I get them down to a million and a half? Like, that, yeah. By the way, that's already saying I don't have a strong hand. So, um, right. fingers right. crossed. And we'll get them down there by threatening to like boycott like single use plastic wrappers or something. Right. Can I ask you, um, I, 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 I know this is a question I've heard you uh, be asked before, but, you know, um, I think it's something I really want to get out there because you I think this is the first time in our conversation that you said you actually said the phrase climate genocide. And, you know, we spent a, a good portion talking about trying to avoid doom and gloom. But I wonder if you could kind of just level with our viewers, you know, what the actual real stakes are like you know what really how this really all could go really fucking wrong because i think sometimes with climate change it can seem really abstract usually the ways especially in the united states you know and you all can push me if i'm wrong about this but in the public discourse the conversation is usually what's going to happen to new york city or what's going to happen to miami 
And that though that would also be disastrous. Like, you know, poor working class people live in those cities. They're going to be hit hardest. They're going to be hit first. They are not going to be like Goldman Sachs, you know, having sandbags, their own generator. And by the way, just so our listeners know, another thing I learned from you, Goldman Sachs has a deal with the NYPD mm-hmm. to, that almost guarantees them when they call the cops instantaneous, you know, appearance. Like, I just want to, like, get that out there. I had no idea. I, I didn't know how deep it ran. But I just would like you to say, I, I don't want to end on this dark note, but I think you, you should say a little bit about the actual reality of the possibility of climate genocide and what you mean by that. Yeah, mm-hmm. I, I, I let me just pour it on for a second, um, because we're not right. we're not even really talking about a strong possibility. We're talking about the kind of logical result. If you start from the current trajectory we're on, business as usual, the current pace of emissions, and the current failures of mitigation, and the current failures of our political systems to provide non-genocidal infrastructure for the climate politics of 2050 and 2070 and the end of the century, what we're talking about is the likeliest result of our current climate trajectory. The likely result of our current climate trajectory would note a few things, and I'm going to take it full circle back to where we started, which is a focus on the African continent. Global distribution of temperature increase is not uniform, so major regions of the African continent could expect to warm at 1.5, the global average rate, um, up to that. That is interacting with a context, as mentioned before, in which already a quarter of the available arable land on the continent is owned under large-scale land acquisition. Already, hundreds of thousands of hectares per year of the Sahel are getting desertified, so there's a contraction in how much arable land there even is. And... We're also dealing with a situation in which we're trying to go off of fossil fuels and try to move to renewable sources of energy, but there are um, many African nations, including some of the most populated ones, like Nigeria and Angola, which derive upwards of 40% of government revenue off of petroleum because up until now, that was cool, globally speaking. So whether it's food security, energy security, or the basic pretense of a state system, we're talking about functionally a political collapse of the African continent before the end of the century. Just to keep it really real, right? That's not even talking yet about what that exodus is going to mean when they meet a militarized, hyper-technological surveillance system everywhere they try to go in order to survive, right? This is the current trajectory of politics. And, you know, I feel like a fucking crazy person because, you know, as far as I can tell, this has made no impact whatsoever on global conversation, on the pace of net zero goals, et cetera, et cetera, right? In 2009, one of the um, African climate negotiators, um, the chair from Sudan was like, you know, this two degree temperature target that we're setting is a joke. And the amount of money that they've 
provided African countries to do their part of our global climate burden isn't enough to buy us all the coffins we would need. That's how he put it. And we are, you know, at current emissions rates, he was talking about a two degree temperature rise. We're on course for something like three. So that's what we're up against. That's not even to talk about the rates of migration in South Asia, which are estimated in the tens of millions from climate displacement. That's not to talk about Central America, which is fueling the concentration camps that we already have on our southern border. That's the state of climate politics. And, you know, I think there should be a little more hustle in our step. Yeah, and that's why I've heard you say a vision of antagonistic security is is almost singularly unable to deal with the climate crisis. That the only the only just way out, I'll, I'll yeah, I'll qualify that the only just way out is what you are calling collaborative security, where we're going to have to actually start, you know, really building the power and the organizations. But I take it's also important the vision. Yeah of a world that would look what it would look like for us to actually share and what we need to to not just survive but flourish and if we think that it's just so we're going to get out by offloading it on the other people i think even the deeper lesson is even those who are well positioned are going to pay for that you know yeah. if it's not the end of the century that that can't be the way yeah mm-hmm. well the, the the terminus of like responding to this with antagonistic security is just like eco-fascism, right? Which is like what's clearly on the horizon already and which should, which really should terrify us a lot more than, than it has. I think one of the, I think a lot about what Naomi Klein writes in her book, This Changes Everything, where she talks about different forms of climate denialism and there's something about climate change denialism and there's something about like, you know, this, like you say, this is just a logical consequence of the trajectory that we're on, but like failing to internalize and onboard that really is itself a form of denying the extent of the ongoing catastrophe and is something that I think we need to try to get better at. It's, it's, a, it's a lot to ask, I suppose, but, but we're not doing enough right now. That's absolutely true. And, and her other book, The Shock Doctrine, um, I think, you know, really makes clear that at the level of building capacity to move global political systems this way and that way, the right are not denialists. No. Mm-hmm. Yes. Right. Right. They are there. And and that's, you know, the other, that's the other half of the, of really important stuff that we get out of Naomi Klein. Yeah, neither are Exxon, Exxon right. Mobil or Shell. Yeah. Exactly. They're not denialists either. Exactly. Yeah. They're not denialists yeah. at all. Yeah. Okay. So I have to intervene here a minute because I, I now I'm in the doom and gloom place so i want to we made it yeah like this is i was hoping we could pull out a tailspin yeah you guys (laughs) okay um like the reason that i don't tend to think about climate change very philosophically and um and i'm actually happy for the opportunity to do that with what femi's been writing is that and it relates to my previous comment about thinking that there's more that there's more of a an ideological left like not I always knew there was no left wing organization like that's that's not in in question but that there was more of an ideological 
left. I, I used to just think it was so obvious that capitalism is doing this. Like, I genuinely didn't always see what was of philosophical interest because I thought, like, if there's anything that's clear to me and anything that should make you a socialist and, like, the argument on the basis of, like, we, that... The, the, the dominant constraints and imperatives that guide human action in the world as we know it are fundamentally hostile to preserving an environment in which we can all live safely. And that, I, I, I find it a little, I've, I've found it perplexing over time and overwhelming to look at debate about climate change because I think the NGOification of climate change is a significant problem. Um, and I think I just gave the benefit of the doubt to too many people that, or organizations or the, or the, the rhetoric, um, because I actually find it kind of surprising that the more practical consequences of climate change aren't better known and that the political costs aren't better known. And, and coming to consciousness that this is the case or this lack of knowledge or consciousness is the case um, is actually a sort of um, shock in it of itself that comes along with the other shocks that I've had about the lack of consensus about, for example, re redistribution um, and its connection to oppression or, or something like that. And I think that what's important about what Femi is offering is, is some philosophical content. Like I love the discussion of, of security and freedom. And for me, that actually tied into some of my interests in republicanism. Like Republicans have tried to like get away from the negative and positive liberty discussion. So I like the idea of like putting some more normative and philosophical meat on the, on the bones of this practical concern that, that sort of helps me at the same time, I, 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 I can't, I, I feel the despair that comes along with this. It feels like the knowledge of what needs to be done and the capacities in which to like pursue a goal are just that the gap between them is so vast. And then like there's, there's this basic problem that I feel like we've been touching on throughout the episode of the lack of some common sense political foundations like the anti-colonial left um, and the left globally uh, in the 60s and 70s, like they had like it was common sense to them that when you were talking about distribution, you were talking about power. This was like the influence of the old left on the new left, if you will. And the ties have been broken. And what we have instead is this like rhetoric that alludes to that. And what what like Adolf Reed has called both andism, where we can do this and that, but like what ends up not happening is an actual internalizing of like the knowledge that like what we're after is political power, understood as the desire, the ability to not be subject to the arbitrary influence of the market. Or so, it, like I guess what I'm coming to is it it seems like we're kind of, we have all of these resources of people that came before us to be able to understand a different way of political thinking than the one we've been habituated to under neoliberalism. On the other hand, we have to like retrain ourselves to think politically under very changed, you know, path dependent, but changed circumstances. And I wonder if how to not, because to me that the doom and gloom arrives where I just, I don't, see that coalescing and I start getting like existentially like really fucked up and afraid. <laughs> and then 
there, it seems like there's a, if there's a more concrete way to think about moving forward, I'm wondering what you all think about that sort of list of anxieties and fears that I have. I think that affective element is really important to do, to reckon with. Yeah. Because that also that, that, that affective development, it, it does tell us about what we need and uh, what we are lacking. And so much of what we are lacking is really asking, so what does it take to build organizational cooperative strength? Or what, what methods are going to do it? Because maybe, I don't think there's a silver bullet. And no. so, you know, it's important to know that, I, you know, to come all the way back full circle, the vibification of politics might make it seem as if, well, if we all just feel like we're on the same page, like, that automatically, you know, will help us lead to something. But no, we really need to start, you know, and I've also been reading some Emil Carr Cabral as well. You know, we really actually need to start asking, so what does it mean to have strength, to have power? And what actually are the ways you build that with people? And that even comes down to interpersonal reactions. No one wants to join a group where there's like a, a puritanism or it's all about, you know, showing off how smart you are or something like that. Like we need to get that basic thing right. And as five people who are more or less relatively online, it, it, it can be really despairing because like it, this cannot be the best we got. Like it, this cannot be the vision of how we're even going to interact with one another to try to build up some sort of social relationships that can start to do this long haul work, short term, medium term and long term. Yeah, and we're not entirely groping in the dark, right? Like some of these organizations are already doing like some of this, uh, some of this work. And and I think that they can act as kind of guiding lights. I mean, I think, Femi, you refer to, I can't remember which, which piece it was in, but you refer to some of these organizations. The Undercommons, I think, was one of them. But uh, I don't know. There were a number of different, what, there's one in D.C. that I think you mentioned you were a part of. Maybe just, like, I, don't, I know we're going on a little long here, but could you actually just say something about that organization in D.C., which I was very curious about? The, some of the work that they're doing? Because I think it's, I think we, I th this is not a question that academics can answer, right? Like, I, I don't. I don't think, in, at least in my opinion, I don't think academics are going to answer. You know, if there were a silver bullet, it's certainly not going to come from us, right? So, or at least insofar as we, you know, do the kinds of work that we that we do. So, I, I'm curious about some of these organizations that you mentioned. I, there's one in DC that sounded, I don't know, really promising. Yeah. So uh, the group I'm in DC is uh, Pan African Community Action. They formed around the community control over police demand in particular um, and really starting to organize around that. And it does uh, weekly political education. And so um, in addition to, you know, working towards a ballot initiative around community control over police. So it, so it really is this kind of back to basic sort of base building thing, you know, from a larger, you know, wire scoping political ideology, right? It's a pan-African socialist group, but you know, there's a concrete, practical goal, and the ideology is around that as opposed to the other way around, right, which is what we see more often. So, you know, when I, you know, went to the Black Workers Center and sat in on a meeting, I was like, I got it, you know, this is the team to join. So um, I feel like that group is a good one for a lot of reasons, but I think to bring it to... To bring it back to the wire scoping question of like, what is it that we do about despair 
how is it that we move in a different way? You know, people have people have their criticisms of the Green New Deal and the green stimulus and those sorts of things. And I, you know, I agree with lots of those criticisms. But I just, you know, I'm not that uh, this is gonna this is gonna sound interesting when taken out of context. <laughs> so I'm just not that critical of a guy. <laughs> Right, you know, like criticizing things Ooh, is easy. That's the pull quote. Oh my god! <laughs> For sure. And, you know, oh no, I you know, oh you know, this this thing doesn't meet some moral principle you cooked up just now. Well, that that's 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 that sounds that sounds plausible to me like you can sell me on that pretty easy it's a very different question from whether or not i should support a thing um, or whether or not i think it's worth doing Mm -hmm. and you know i just i just don't find the practice of criticism at least as i find it in most academic circles um i don't find it very helpful um at least like as a kind of overall orientation to thinking not that like the act of criticizing is bad i think we understand how bad things are now yeah <laughs> yeah it's a, it's a lot of like perfect enemy of the good right. sort of thing but mm-hmm. but what i like about those things um and you know the team i feel i've joined you know there's a group of academics who are trying to um push for this in a like fairly organized way the climate and community project where it's just like what we're going to focus on is we are going to figure out what the good things are that we should be doing. And we're going to move in response to those. And I think there, there was a design studio under uh, professor Billy Fleming at UPenn and they just built, you know, the students there just built these beautiful visuals and stories about how, you know, a green new deal could change the Mississippi Delta or change Appalachia, um, Hmm. how we could, get rid of this carceral infrastructure and give people unionized, dignified jobs that help people around them or whatever. And like the doom and gloom is important for lighting a fire under our asses. But like I, at the end of the day, I don't get up trying to stop doom and gloom or even really try to stop the far right. Right. Like those people just happen to be in between us and something great, us in a much better world. And like, that's the thing that I'm fighting for. And I think that's a place we can root ourselves other than in despair and steal ourselves up for what it's going to take to build that better world. Thank you. And on that wonderful note, that does it for us. New episodes of What's Left of Philosophy come out every two weeks, wherever you get your podcasts. So please like, subscribe, and also leave us a comment wherever you can. Follow us on Twitter at Left of Phil. And if you like what we're doing, consider supporting us on Patreon at patreon.com slash left of philosophy. Uh, I want to join everyone. Thank you so much for coming on here, uh, Femi. And we hope to have more conversations with you in the future. Farewell, everyone. Bye, everyone. Take care. Thanks a lot, Fabian. Thank you so much. Thanks, man.